This is Engage Governance, the podcast series from the Chartered Governance Institute, UK and Ireland. In this podcast, I'm talking to Andrew Horbury, Director at the School of International Financial Services, about cryptocurrencies. Andrew, could you introduce yourself and give us an overview of today's topic? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Rachel. Um, I'm a director at the School of International Financial Services. In in terms of uh, the topic today, uh, Mm. we're going to have a look at uh, what cryptocurrencies are. We're going to consider some of the different risk vectors for um, servicing cryptocurrency clients and for businesses that may be uh, already exposed to cryptocurrency or or looking at exploring uh, what exposure to cryptocurrency and cryptocurrency clients might look like. Okay, well, thank you very much for that introduction. So to start with um, a nice introductory question, what are cryptocurrencies? So when we talk about cryptocurrencies, we're we're generally talking about uh, some form of digital representation of value that can be transferred on a peer-to-peer basis through Mm -hmm. the use of blockchain technology. So Mm -hmm. generally, when we're looking at cryptocurrencies, we are looking at the concepts of decentralization and disintermediation. So mm-hmm. if you think about our traditional payment systems, so the use of financial institutions like banks or credit card mm-hmm. companies, we always tend to rely on a centralized intermediary to process, to intermediate that transaction for us. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. you know, if we're sending funds to our utility company or to a friend for, 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 for a dinner we had the other evening, we're mm-hmm. likely going to be using a bank or an electronic money institution, something like a Revolut, mm-hmm. to transfer those funds. Mm-hmm. Now, cryptocurrencies are built on this concept of replacing those intermediaries, removing mm-hmm. the intermediation, and replacing it with technology, effectively a a network of computers and the Mm -hmm. use of computer code and encryption to Mm -hmm. allow parties to transfer value from place A to place B, party A to Mm -hmm. party B, without the use of any centralized intermediary. Okay, well, that makes a lot of sense. Um, And But you mentioned about um, the use of computers, So something we might immediately think about is the risk of being hacked or stolen. And I have heard of that happening Um, and all people losing access to their cryptocurrency. So so why is that happening? What's what's going on there? Sure. So the key thing to to grasp what goes on with with hacks and the loss of of crypto assets is to Mm. first understand how. Uh, the ownership of crypto assets works and and how it's governed. And and the way that crypto asset ownership works, uh, and in fact, how all of the transactions work, is through Mm -hmm. the use of public and private key cryptography. Now, Mm -hmm. it's the same technology, public key and private key cryptography, is the same technology that secures uh, most of our digital worlds. You know, when we log into a social media site um, Mm -hmm. or when we log into um, a banking platform, we are using a form of public and private key cryptography, Mm -hmm. the use of a username and password. And it's Mm -hmm. that same type of technology that governs ownership of crypto assets. We have a public key, which is Mm -hmm. effectively a a string of letters and numbers, which is stamped or recorded in the publicly available uh, ledger of information that is the blockchain. We then have a corresponding private key, which denotes ownership of what's recorded there publicly on the blockchain. Now, these private keys are really the the important part of of cryptocurrency ownership, because whoever has access to the private key can Mm -hmm. digitally sign a transaction, not dissimilar to to signing a check 
And that's mm-hmm. what authorizes the transfer of value over the network of computers, over the peer-to-peer network. Mm-hmm. Now, you'll hear numerous stories of people who have lost their private keys mm-hmm. um, and are unable to recover cryptocurrency or where a computer hacker has gained access to somebody's mm-hmm. private keys. Now, if you remember on, on the intro to cryptocurrencies, I mentioned, you know, decentralized and disintermediated. Mm-hmm. The whole mm-hmm. premise is we don't rely on any centralized intermediary. Mm-hmm. That means there's nobody to go to if you lose your private key. There's no mm. bank you can go to to reverse a transaction or to regain access. The mm. whole premise of cryptocurrency is that users self-custody their own assets. They are responsible for their own assets. Mm. And as a result of that, there's a big risk there that you lose them mm. or somebody else gains access to them. Now, mm. the gaining access to them, a lot of the hacks, is generally where a centralized, centralized party is reintroduced Uh, into the ecosystem. So, you know, if you take something like a cryptocurrency exchange, Mm. effectively what you do when you use a cryptocurrency exchange is you trust that provider to store Mm. your private keys for you. You're effectively Mm -hmm. storing them to handle your assets. Mm -hmm. And the risk here is that your access to that exchange platform is merely secured using an email address and a Mm. password. And, you know, the ability to compromise email addresses and passwords is Mm. fairly straightforward. The majority of us will probably have been included in some form of data leak. Uh, Mm. And most of us tend to have bad password hygiene and we recycle Mm. the same passwords, making it easy enough for a cyber attacker to to guess them. The Mm -hmm. other risk vector is that you're trusting that this exchange, this third party who you're using to re-intermediate your transactions, you're trusting that their uh, technological infrastructure, all of their back end and their cybersecurity controls are absolutely solid. Uh, Because if they're not and someone gains access that way, they've got access to your private keys. And Mm. again, off they go with your crypto assets. Mm -hmm. And what's the safest way to to store your private key then? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, And there's a lot of uh, disagreement, I'd say, in space uh, Mm. around what this should look like. Mm. Um, The way people store private keys is in something called a wallet. And Mm -hmm. you can distinguish wallets between whether they are cold or hot or Mm. whether they are custodial or non-custodial. So the differentiation between cold and hot basically Mm. is whether or not that private key is connected to the Internet. So if right. it's hosted on an online platform and you can log into details, then it's a hot wallet. Mm-hmm. If you store it offline, which historically used to literally be writing down a private key on a piece of paper. Mm-hmm. Um, more recently, we've got some more sophisticated devices, which are, are sort of like USB drives. Mm-hmm. They're private, what we call private hardware security modules. Uh, and these USB type keys are able to store the private key on mm-hmm. them in a way where it's air gapped from the internet. And that's generally mm-hmm. seen uh, as the most secure method. Uh, but it doesn't work for everyone and everything. Uh, for individuals, it might might be suitable. But for institutions, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, if you start to look at the types of uh, investment funds, they need mm-hmm. access to the uh, digital assets online. They need to be mm-hmm. able to actively trade them. Um, and the cold storage infrastructure um, to, to safely handle assets where they're air gaps from the internet mm. is catching up, but isn't yet fully there. You know, you wouldn't be able to apply in most cases, the same governance controls we're used to applying to things like company bank accounts or client bank accounts uh, to handling virtual assets or crypto assets. Okay. Um, 
And you talked a little bit about the idea of being decentralized um, mm. and the term DeFi and decentralized finance are becoming more common to hear about. Are they related? What do they refer to? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, cr- cryptocurrency, there were some notable exceptions of, of early mm. works in relation to cryptocurrency, but putting most to one side, it's generally accepted that the birth of cryptocurrency um, was as a result of the introduction of Bitcoin in, in 2009 mm. by the, the anonymous or, or pseudonymous person, uh, mm. Satoshi Nakamoto. And the white paper and um, thesis around uh, Bitcoin was this idea to create a digital currency that was outside of the control of governments and central mm. bank monetary policy, and that could be exchanged in a trustless way without Mm. having to use a centralized and and regulated intermediary and instead rely on computer codes to create Mm. that trustless uh, method of exchange. And for a a good number of years, say a good eight, nine, 10 years following the introduction of Bitcoin, that's all we really had in the the cryptocurrency space. Mm. It was just further iterations of cryptocurrencies, coins, which were designed as Mm. some method to transfer value between different parties. What we then started to get was a shift into more sophisticated applications of the same concepts and the same mm-hmm. technology. So we saw these similar concepts of decentralization, of disintermediation, the use of blockchain technology, but now applied mm-hmm. to other areas of financial services beyond just payments, which cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin were, were focused on. And that is what we have with with DeFi or or decentralized finance. It's the Hmm. provision of all the different financial services that we currently have in in modern economies, but Hmm. using the principles of of peer-to-peer basis uh, and disintermediation. And we have Hmm. uh, loads of things going on in the DeFi space. There are borrowing or lending protocols whereby you can lock some of your cryptocurrency assets uh, into a smart contract as collateral and then mm. borrow against them up to you know, 50, 75% LTVs in certain instances. You then have you know, someone on the other end of that who is depositing their cryptocurrencies into these smart contracts uh, and an exchange mm. is receiving an interest rate uh, for depositing those funds there for them to be mm. lent out to someone else. But again, it's all on a peer-to-peer basis using mm. the, the blockchain and, and smart contracts as the method to do this rather than an intermediary. We have things in uh, insurance, you know, you can go and insure the risk of a cryptocurrency protocol or, or smart contract failing. We, you can insure mm. the risk of a cryptocurrency exchange being hacked and your cryptocurrency being stolen. And again, it's all about that, you know, balanced side of the book as someone on the other end mm. who is prepared to insure against that risk, deposit funds into a protocol um, and receive some premium in exchange to that. And then we've got um, decentralized exchanges, and these are mm. probably by, by far the biggest element of decentralized finance. Mm-hmm. So these are taking you know, your, your cryptocurrency exchanges, which up until date have been centralized. You have a company who you go and onboard with and you open an account and then you can then trade it in their order book. And it's mm. switching that out to fully decentralized there is no central party it is Mm. all computer code it is all smart contracts and people can now exchange from one cryptocurrency like bitcoin into another one like ethereum or into another one like solana using Mm. these smart contracts without using any centralized intermediary to facilitate those transactions so Mm -hmm. that's what we're looking at with with DeFi. 
And um, in the absence of an intermediary, does that create risk? I can see the appeal, but are there risks that an, a traditionally an intermediary would mitigate? Yeah, fully. So, you know, the, the design of these solutions and the, and the initial premise of, of cryptocurrency was to reduce those risks that intermediaries um, mm. mitigate through the use of computer code. And mm. um, to a large extent, a lot of these protocols do this, but you've mm. always got the risk that the computer code fails. Mm. Uh, and we see it happen. We, we talk about smart contract failure, which mm. is, you know, where the, the computer code that has been developed uh, is in some way exploited uh, mm. And in many cases, tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars can be uh, stolen or, or redirected somewhere else because mm. the coding that was was developed wasn't absolutely watertight or that it wasn't mm. audited. So there is definitely risk there. You know, the, the high quality uh, DeFi protocols will conduct audits. They will engage an external uh, computer code auditor effectively to review their smart contracts uh, and certify them as secure and, and, and really as an industry standard that should be happening on a regular basis as well mm. you know every three if not every six months mm. um, but by and large what I'm saying there isn't the norm you know if mm. I was to put an arbitrary figure on it you might be looking at 20 percent uh, of DeFi protocols currently undergo that process. Uh, right. We see new ones popping up all the time and they don't necessarily have the funding or the network or the expertise um, mm. to go through that, that full auditing process to, to try and reduce the risk of, of failure. Mm. Um, and I've also seen headlines about um, NFTs um, being sold for millions of dollars or millions of pounds. Um, what exactly are they and how are they different to cryptocurrencies? So NFT stands for uh, non-fungible token. And mm -hmm. um, to, to grasp them, it's worth running over the concept of uh, fungibility. Mm -hmm. So the concept of fungibility is effectively whether something uh, is the same or if it's exchangeable for the same. So mm -hmm. let's say you know you, you and I have got two £10 notes. We, we put them into a hat. We mm -hmm. scrunch them around a bit. Mm -hmm. At the end of it, you don't really care which £10 note you got back mm -hmm. because £10 notes are fungible. They're all worth £10. We can go and exchange from elsewhere for goods and services. It, it doesn't matter which note it is that we got out of the two. Mm. And the same applies to cryptocurrencies. You couldn't care less, you know, which Bitcoins or which Ethereum tokens you had because they are mm. all fungible. They're all worth mm -hmm. the same value. We then have things which can be semi-fungible. So this is mm. where they share some of the same feature, uh, but then they have some elements that are unique. And a good example mm -hmm. of this is something like a concert ticket. You know, everyone with a ticket to the concert will get access. So that mm. element of the ticket is fungible. But uh -huh. some of the tickets might be seated. Some of them might be standing. Some might be standard access. Some mm. might be VIP access. Mm -hmm. And therefore, there is a degree of non-fungibility uh, in mm -hmm. that element. So then we lastly come around to things which are fully non-fungible. And what mm -hmm. we're talking about there are things which are fully unique. They have entirely yeah. unique attributes and you would care whether you got one over the other because they're entirely different. Right. Now, primarily what we're seeing um, with NFTs at the moment is the use of them in digital artwork or in digital collectibles. 
Mm-hmm. Now, this is the sort of stuff that you'll have been seeing mm-hmm. um, being auctioned off and, and sold for, for, for hundreds of thousands, millions of uh, pounds in, in many cases. And what we have here are, generally speaking, algorithmically generated artworks. So an algorithm is used to combine a number of different attributes with varying rarities. So a, a common one you may have come across is, is something called the Board Ape Yacht Club. Uh, mm. It's probably up there as, as, as V, if not one of the two or three uh, of the most well-known NFT art collections. And it's mm. certainly the most expensive. You're looking at hundreds of thousands of dollars and collections of them have been auctioned off at, at Christie's and, and other auction houses mm. for, for tens of millions of pounds. Um, and they're effectively just uh, pictures of, of cartoon apes and <laughs> they all have different attributes on them. Some are wearing glasses, some are wearing hats. And the rarity of each of those attributes to a degree determines the value of them. You know, some of them mm-hmm. will be a particular colored ape and there might only be 2% of those apes available in the entire collection. And because of that, the market perceives them to be uh, of higher value. What we kind of have with NFTs in their current state is a combination of the art world. So people investing and collecting pieces of art and then combining that with what we have in the collectibles world with things like baseball cards and the rarity Mm. of them making them more valuable uh, Mm -hmm. or equally more recently, things like people collecting sneakers again for those same reasons. And that's what we have at the moment in the NFT space. I Mm. I think we're likely to see more. Um, I've worked with a a couple of clients who are looking at trying to take um, event tickets onto the blockchain using Mm. NFTs to represent those tickets and to Mm. verify their authenticity because this is a key part of NFTs Mm. is that we can verify through the blockchain the authenticity of that digital artwork or or Mm. of that item. So I think there's more to come with the NFTs, but at at the moment Mm. uh, we are primarily uh, focused as a a sector around pictures of of cartoon animals, it appears. Right. And just thinking a little bit about the risks um, related to cryptocurrencies and NFTs, mm. um, I think there's concern that they can be used um, for money laundering or financial crime. Do you see that as a big problem? Um, good question. So I think there's, there's two elements there, and it's, it's worth considering the history of cryptocurrencies here to a degree, because mm. you know when we first had the introduction of, of cryptocurrencies with the, the birth of Bitcoin, mm. the early adopters of, uh, of crypto, and particularly Bitcoin, were primarily split into a few different groups. You had mm. um, what, what I would call the, the anti-establishment sort. These were mm. people uh, who wanted to have a form of currency which was outside the control of central bank um, policy and, and of governments and something that they could hold and own themselves without using the financial sector. Mm-hmm. You then had uh, the techies or the technologists. These were people who uh, were you know, interested, excited, perhaps even mm-hmm. uh, in the technology and what could mm-hmm. be achieved in the future by using blockchain and, and by being able to transfer value over the internet in a trustless way, um, mm-hmm. in a way that's never been seen before. Mm-hmm. You then had uh, a third category. Um, mm. And as happens with uh, anything, you will always find parties who will find features of something attractive and abuse mm. those to meet their um, illicit or criminal aims. And, and that mm. was exactly the same with what we had with cryptocurrencies is immediately um, organized crime groups, mm. uh, drug dealers in particular, um, cyber criminals 
all saw this use to have mm. um, the ability to now send funds anywhere around the world on a peer-to-peer basis mm. um, in a way which at the time was entirely unregulated. It wasn't even mm. on the radar of uh, regulators at, at this point of time, really. And mm. in those early days, the total number of transactions was dwarfed quite heavily by criminal actors. There was the existence of something called darknet marketplaces, Mm. which were effectively, you know, an Amazon or an eBay that existed Mm. on a certain part of the internet called the dark web, Mm. um, where people could buy and sell almost any illegal good and and service you can can imagine. Mm. Uh, Initially, very much focused on uh, drugs. People would buy cannabis and and cocaine and and other Mm. drugs online. And the payment mechanism there was Bitcoin. And mm. because of that, and, and because of that was, you know, very much connected with, with the early days of cryptocurrency, mm. there's always been this focus on uh, money laundering risk in mm. cryptocurrency. And it all comes down to the perceived anonymity of crypto mm. assets in that, you know, we said before that mm. the information recorded on the blockchain is something called a public key or an address, mm. and that's not tied to any real world identity. Uh, and mm. because of that, it allows people to transact in a way that can often be seen uh, as anonymous. Mm-hmm. Now, in terms of whether it's a big problem to date, it's certainly a problem. Um, I don't think it's anywhere near as substantial a problem as it historically was. Mm. Um, by virtue of the blockchain being publicly available, it's mm. possible to interrogate historic data and you can connect quite easily the addresses of things like darknet marketplaces mm. or the addresses of people on sanctions lists mm. um, to different crypto transactions. And you can quite easily build a picture using um, artificial intelligence tools and, and blockchain mm. analytics tools of the risk profile of a particular cryptocurrency uh, wallet address. And, and as a result mm. of all that sort of stuff, um, cryptocurrency money laundering, cryptocurrency related financial crime, based mm. on the data, most reports will put as between one and 2%. Now, if we contrast that with uh, traditional markets, although it's an estimate, that the generally accepted rule is that we're looking at somewhere between three and 5% of global gross domestic product uh, is some form of illicit uh, transaction. So Mm. arguably less uh, money laundering and and financial crime in crypto assets Mm. uh, than traditional, but that doesn't by any means take away from the fact that it is a risk vector and it is a Mm. particularly big risk vector because the space evolves at such a pace that the mm. risks uh, or the risk profile can change substantially over a period of, of six months. You know, we, we spoke yeah. about DeFi before mm. and centralized cryptocurrency exchanges in most places of the world are now regulated. But decentralized finance tends in most jurisdictions to fall outside the scope of regulation. So whilst mm. we are seeing KYC done when you use a centralized party, peer-to-peer mm. transactions or the use of DeFi doesn't touch the world of uh, due diligence and KYC. And that no. there is a huge risk vector uh, around mm. you know, people being able to use it to transfer uh, illicit uh, gains mm. or illicit proceeds. Yeah. Um, and do you think that in the context of what's happening in, in Ukraine at the moment, is there a particular risk of um, Russians using cryptocurrencies to perhaps get around sanctions? You mentioned sanctions list just then, or for money laundering. Yeah, totally. I mean, um, it, it all comes down to what controls are in place. 
um, mm. to identify people and to screen transactions. And, um, you know, the, the only where place that sort of stuff comes from is mm. regulation. So it, it mm. all depends on what the regulatory or legal requirements are in certain jurisdictions. In most places, you take the UK and the EU as an example, and um, mm. most crypto providers are subject to the same anti-money laundering requirements as financial institutions. They need to mm. identify the customer. They need to understand the purpose and nature of the relationship. They need to screen the transactions and they need to mm. search them against uh, sanctions databases. So through routes like that, uh, there isn't really an avenue. Um, mm. However, as we've said, there are things like decentralized finance. There mm. are the ability or there is the ability to transfer on a peer to peer basis. Mm. And it's areas like that where mm. cryptocurrencies and even NFTs could 100 percent be being used and, and no doubt are to some degree being used to mm. circumvent sanctions. Uh, it all really comes down to where's the weakest link in the chain. Uh, and mm. that will tend to be around a lack of regulation in a particular jurisdiction or mm. jurisdictions whereby the sanctions don't apply um, and that's how you can then off-ramp it. Yeah. Um, and so you've, you've mentioned regulation a few times. Um, mm. Where Where is regulation in crypto? Is crypto still the Wild West or is regulation ca catching up? Um, I, th I think it's definitely catching up and, and to some degree has caught up. It, mm -hmm. it all depends on what areas of regulation we're looking at. So, you mm -hmm. know, you look back at 2016 to 2017, uh, most crypto operators, whether they be exchanges or, or custodians of some form or, or something else, in most places around the world, weren't subject to anti-money laundering regulations. Um, it mm -hmm. took, you know, governments to proactively legislate to bring them in scope or to introduce mm. specific laws. And as a result of that, you know, financial crime risk, money laundering risk, terrorist financing risk uh, was much greater at that point versus what we have now, which mm. is in the majority of the world, bar, let's say, a handful of jurisdictions, you know, crypto activities are subject to some form of money laundering regulations. You have to identify the client. You have to screen the transactions in the same way as you would if you were a financial institution. Mm. Now, the challenge is that the technology and the industry um, evolves at such a rapid pace. So, you know, there mm. is or there are different types of regulation around the world that are due to be introduced or have mm -hmm. been introduced over the last couple of years. And they are in touch with an industry of 2018 or 2019 not mm. what's currently happening now. So, you know, a lot mm. of the regulation around AML didn't mm. consider aspects of decentralized finance because it wasn't really uh, a thing at the time. Mm. And regulators and governments are always going to have this challenge of trying to keep pace with the industry and the innovation with striking the right balance between protecting and financial systems from financial crime and meeting their other regulatory objectives and trying not to, to stifle innovation. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that's one area which is fairly underdeveloped at the moment mm -hmm. um, uh, around things like consumer protection. We, we've had a lot of regulation around uh, financial crime and anti-money laundering, mm -hmm. not so much focused around uh, investment business and securities and consumer protection. Uh, mm -hmm. And that's where I think we really need to see uh, regulation catch up to yeah. box off that element of, of protection. And, and in terms of our audience, how 
How would a company secretary and their team expect to encounter cryptocurrencies in their day-to-day work? So I think it depends, you know, what exactly it is the, the company that, that they're acting as COSEC mm. is doing. Um, a lot of businesses are now looking at um, accepting payments in, in, in cryptocurrency mm. and there's therefore a concern there around how those assets are um, managed, whether they are being screened, what controls mm. we have internally um, and what, what governance processes we have internally to manage uh, the, the processes around transferring those crypto assets and storing those crypto assets. And I think mm. a lot of that sits quite nicely uh, with the skill set and, and knowledge and experience of COSECs and you mm. know, with research and, and training and education, they could mm. become a really good skill set to support that. I guess you've then got um, COSECs of companies which are servicing clients which themselves might have cryptocurrency risk. And again, a, a lot of the same stuff there uh, applies there. It's all going to be around what is the risk exposure. And I break that down into operational risk exposure. Mm. So do we end up losing assets? Can somebody embezzle assets? What can we do mm. to make sure they're protected? And then broader regulatory and financial crime prevention exposure in terms mm. of, you know, is there a risk that what we currently do and the way we currently operate could be abused by criminals uh, by virtue of the features of cryptocurrency that they can go and exploit. Okay, interesting. Um, do you think there's a chance that employees will want to be paid in cryptocurrency in the near to medium term? Yeah, I think there is. I mean, you know, if you yeah. look into the um, technology space, the, the majority of the mm. developers, um, even a lot of the lawyers and, and accountants mm. that we frequently use in, in the crypto web free space, mm. uh, all take payment in cryptocurrency. And a lot of those mm. firms pay uh, their employees in, in cryptocurrency. So I think there certainly will be broader demand across other sectors, um, just not right now. The, 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 okay. the barriers to entry at the moment are, are quite high. It, it's fairly right. challenging and complex. And yeah. I don't think in its current state there are any advantages for the common user over receiving it in crypto versus having the money just credited into their bank account. And yeah. I think as those barriers reduce, as it becomes easier, more user-friendly to access, you know, if you can get to a point where you can use cryptocurrencies without even really having to talk about what they are or how the technology works, then we're probably at a good position uh, to yeah. start seeing broader mass adoption and, and things like people wanting salary paid in, in crypto. Yeah. Um, so what, what do you think a company secretary should be doing now or thinking about now to prepare themselves and to advise their board? So I think it's all about keeping up to date with what's going on in the space, you know, recognising that you are not a, a technologist, but you should still yeah. um, be making sure that you have a, a, a decent understanding and awareness of what cryptocurrencies are, what blockchain mm. technology is, uh, and put some thought through to, you know, how it might uh, be used or, or how mm. it could impact your business uh, and your industry uh, mm. and make sure, you know, you are there and, and able to contribute in a meaningful way as mm. and when or, or if uh, the business decides to, to start looking at, at crypto assets in whatever capacity that might be. Okay, and in terms of advising the board, what do you think are the risks and opportunities um, that you are associated with cryptocurrencies for a business um, now and in the future? So I think a lot of it comes down to whether you are or can appeal 
to a different demographic. Um, mm-hmm. I think, you know, a, a particularly a younger generation, younger than, than even I, um, <laughs> see cryptocurrencies and uh, um, blockchain-based solutions as more as the norm rather than um, an alternative to an existing system. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think it will be, you know, recognizing, depending on the business model, if that's a target market or begins to become a target market over the coming years, then we probably need to start thinking now about how we service them. And mm-hmm. in order to service them, we're going to have to make sure that all of our governance and risk management frameworks are in place. And it's mm-hmm. probably going to take a lot of work because unless it's a well-trodden path that the cryptocurrency sector has already been looking at, you're probably mm-hmm. looking at doing something fairly new and fairly innovative uh, and trying to devise solutions that, that don't currently exist. Mm-hmm. Okay. Thank you very much. Um, This has been a really interesting overview of um, understanding cryptocurrencies, NFTs, how they relate to financial crime um, and and what we can do about it and and how that all feeds into the role of the company secretary now and in the future. Um, Thank you very much for your time, Andrew. It's been really insightful. My absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Engage Governance. Look out for more podcasts coming soon. We would like to thank our sponsors and experts for supporting the launch of the Engage Governance podcast series. To access more podcasts and other useful governance tools like our guidance notes, blogs and articles, please visit www.cgi.org.uk.